series on the book of Daniel today, and we will do this by looking at Daniel 4. Would you please rise out of reverence for God's word? We will be looking specifically at Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 37. Please give careful attention to this reading of God's word. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accorded are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the living and active word of the living and true God, the King of heaven. Receive it as such. You may be seated. Each one of us here, men and women, boys and girls, live in what theologians have called the overlapping of the ages. You see, on the one hand, we live on this side of the fall. In Adam, our first father, we fell and lost our communion with God, lost our original righteousness, and became corrupted in every way and came under the wrath and curse of God. This is the condition into which all of us are born. The kingdom which God gave to Adam to cultivate and build fell. Living and now we live in a state of what's called sin and misery. Yet on the other hand, we also live on this side of the cross, wherein God sent forth his son, the second Adam, who through his life, death, and resurrection has inaugurated the kingdom of God. And even as we just profess, he will return with glory to fully establish 
that kingdom. Adam, who was made in the image of God, sinned in his pride of trying to become like God through the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yet Christ, in humility, who was equal with God, humbled himself, took the form of a servant to bring about restoration and his own exaltation. The first age was made corrupt because Adam sinned, giving way to darkness and death. And yet the new age formed by Christ gives light and life. Those of us living today are living in the consequences of Adam's sin. But we have seen and experienced the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his kingdom, which is coming. But one of the consequences of Adam's sin, which we still see, is the separation of the kingdom of men and the kingdom of God. In our passage of Daniel 4 today, we see the consequences of this breaking down. We see in the light and life of Nebuchadnezzar and his experience the consequences even of the sin which Adam introduced. In this passage, we see the kingdom of God overruling the kings and kingdom of men. The greatest king of the kingdom of men will be brought to confess the kingship of God and praise and proclaim his everlasting kingdom and dominion. What we'll see through this text today specifically is that whereas all the kings of this earth and all their kingdoms are unreliable, unstable, and ultimately will fall, Yet God's kingdom in Christ is everlasting and unshakable. To come to this conclusion, we'll consider just two points today. Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation and Nebuchadnezzar's restoration. Let's look at that first point, Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation, looking specifically at verses 28 through 33. Last week we looked at the first half of Daniel chapter 4. Perhaps you noticed that when we read it at the start, all these things happened to him. All these things is referring to the vision, the dream, which uh, God gave to Nebuchadnezzar and which Daniel interpreted. Uh, The dream was of a tree which reached to the heavens and could be seen from all the parts of the earth. And it had these great branches which gave shelter to the beasts of the field and where nestings could happen for birds. And it had all this leafage, and it had abundant fruit, so that all flesh was fed from it. Yet this tree has an angel come down, and it's commanded to be chopped down. Its beautiful leafage is to be stripped. All that abundant fruit is to be scattered, and the beasts and the birds are told that they should flee. Yet there's a stump that remains with a a band of bronze and iron around it. As Daniel explained, the tree represented the kingdom which Nebuchadnezzar had made with the shelter and sustenance which he provided for the nations. The bound stump represents God's preservation of this kingdom, and it's Nebuchadnezzar who will be given a mind of a beast and to go live in a field like a beast eating the grass as an ox. At the end of the interpretation, we noted, Daniel boldly called on Nebuchadnezzar to repent, to break off from your sins by practicing righteousness, by giving thought and compassion to the poor 
and oppressed, those who you have oppressed in building this glorious kingdom as you so see it. Now in our passage, we get to see whether or not Nebuchadnezzar took Daniel's advice, and quite clearly, he did not. We get that ominous statement in verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. All of this, of course, refers to the content of the dream, with his kingdom being taken from him and him being driven into the field. Whereas Daniel held out hope to Nebuchadnezzar that if he would repent, this punishment might be averted. But in the pride of his heart, Nebuchadnezzar refused to repent and seek the Lord's mercy. We see that this was the case in verses 29 through 30. These verses state, At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my power as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty? After twelve months seems to refer to the twelve months after Nebuchadnezzar had received this dream and the interpretation and the call from Daniel to repent and turn from his sins. This highlights the Lord's compassion, that he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. Remember, we talked about the parallel with Assyria and Nineveh. God sent Jonah, and he gave them 40 days. 40 days to repent. That's even a long time. And when they heard it, the king bowed himself down, covered himself in ashes, and had all the people do it, and all the animals. And what happened? The Lord was compassionate, and he did not destroy the city at that time. That was 40 days. Here, God gives Nebuchadnezzar a full year, 365 days that you might repent and listen to my word. And yet, the king stayed in his pride. We're told, rather than repent of his pride and oppression, a year later, Nebuchadnezzar has taken a stroll on his roof and is just glorying in his own glory and majesty as he reflects on his palace and the kingdom and his accomplishments, saying, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? This fits with the Nebuchadnezzar known outside of the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar was a great military commander, even as we have talked about, with uh, attacking both Egypt and Jerusalem and conquering them. But he is also well known as a great builder, an architect, as it were. He restored the capital city. He built up the temples to his gods. And perhaps he also built one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which are said to have been built for his Midian wife who missed the hill country and the plants there. This episode likely happened after his major military conquests and building projects. As we're told, he was walking on the roof and admiring the grandeur of the kingdom which all these years he has taken to build up for his own glory. In chapters 2 and 3, the knowledge and power of the Lord have been revealed to Nebuchadnezzar, that it's him who sets up and brings down kings. Earlier in chapter 4, God revealed to him, through Daniel, 
that it is the Most High who rules over the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he will, even the lowliest of men. Yet a year later, Nebuchadnezzar has not learned the lesson. Instead, he attributes the greatness of Babylon to his own power, and he dedicates it to his own glory, the glory of his own majesty, he says. Pride, self-gratification, and idolatry consume the heart of the king as he walks on the roof of the palace in Babylon. At this arrogance, we're told that the Lord's patience has reached its limit. So in verse 31 through 32, we read, While the words, his boasting words, were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king, Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Even while Nebuchadnezzar's prideful boast was still on his lips, a voice comes from heaven, even as the angel in the vision came down from heaven and commanded the tree to be chopped down. So too this voice comes from heaven and proclaims its verdict. The voice describes a summary of the vision and punishment which is coming on Nebuchadnezzar. His kingdom is driven from him. That is, it's taken away. It's not yours anymore. And indeed, he is driven out from that kingdom and is made to be like a beast for seven periods of time, likely referring to seven years. And it will take this long so that he knows that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men. Verse 33 gives us the result. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long, as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. The mention of his hair growing as long as eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' talons, it indicates his bestial condition, yes, but also the length of time that he was in this condition. Kids, if you want to see a picture of this, look up William Blake's painting of it. It's a pretty good rendition of what he might have looked like in this condition, where these feathery-like hair and talons like a bird. This is an embarrassing, humiliating state for the king of the earth to be put in. But that is what God does to humble him. While critics object that we don't have any evidence of this outside the Bible, of him losing his mind and acting like a beast, but the truth is, Nebuchadnezzar ruled a long time. His reign was 43 or so years. In the archaeological evidence we have, we only have 13 of the first years. And as we talked about, this passage likely happened later in his reign, after he built his kingdom. The point is, we just don't have all the evidence for it. But we do have the Bible, which actually is a historical record of this insanity which came upon him of this state of humiliation. In any case, this is the state of Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. He who was at that time the most powerful man on earth is reduced to a bestial existence and is driven 
from mankind. But the Lord, on his part, had been exceedingly patient with Nebuchadnezzar, displaying to him signs and wonders and giving him a whole year to repent, not to mention the years which came before where he already revealed himself through dream and his power to save through delivering from the fiery furnace. Yet Nebuchadnezzar refused to acknowledge his own sin and to recognize that all that he had, all that he had, all that he was, came from the Most High God. Instead, though, Nebuchadnezzar took all the credit and all the glory to himself and sought to exalt his own name, not the God of heaven. How patient, how patient has the Lord been to you? How often has he revealed his law to you? How often has he revealed his grace in the Lord Jesus Christ? Week in and week out, we hear this gospel presented. We hear of our sin and misery and of the way to escape it, the way of restoration. How do you receive that? Does it just fall on deaf and dumb ears? Do you still go about and seek to build up your own glory, to try to work all things out through your own power and strength and to build your kingdom? How patient has the Lord been to you? All that we have, all that we are is from and through him, and therefore all needs to go to him. To him belongs the glory. We must acknowledge our sins before the Lord, and we must recognize that we have nothing that we did not first receive. And if we received it, how can we boast as if we didn't? Because of this, we must seek to glorify God with our whole person and all of our possessions. Therefore, His honor and His glory. When we understand that our humiliation is to bring about a confession of our dependence on God and His mercy and grace, this is then the way to restoration. Which brings us to our second and final point. We've just looked at Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation Now let's consider his restoration in verses 34 through 37. Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation, as you might have noticed, was described in the third person. But now, for his restoration, he returns again to speaking in the first person account of what transpired. So in the first half of verse 34, he continues, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar says, at the end of the days, seemingly referring to the seven periods of time, which probably refers to seven years, long enough at least to grow those eagle's feathers and bird's talons, in any case. In reference to Nebuchadnezzar lifting up his eyes to heaven, E.J. Young helpfully notes that it indicates that he now recognized that heaven was the source of his help and lifted his eyes thereunto. With the return of his reason, his first thought was to praise God as the Eternal One, whose dominion is without end. In other words, finally being brought to the end of himself, Nebuchadnezzar sees that in and of himself there is no hope and there is no help. And he sees that he must look to the heavens, to the Most High God, where there is hope, where there is help. His first response, though, was to give praise to the Lord. 
and your deliverance, what's your first response? It needs to be give praise to the Lord who is the one who brings restoration and forgiveness. There is hope and help from the maker of heaven and earth to whom we must lift up our eyes. Scholars and commentators disagree over whether or not Nebuchadnezzar was truly converted and became a sincere worshiper of the one true God. I'm sure all of us here have our own opinions on that. For my part, I think nothing less than God's work of regeneration could explain this change from a beastly condition and existence to an acknowledgement of the one true God. You can disagree with me on that. We'll talk at the dinner or lunch. But I think it's seen in his wording. Not only did Nebuchadnezzar bless the Most High, but also praised and honored him as he lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar is actually one of the first people I want to meet in heaven. But it'd be cool. And he continues in the second half of verse 34, stating, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Remember that the decree or sentence made against Nebuchadnezzar was that his kingdom should be taken away from him, that he would be driven away from mankind, and that he would be given the mind of a beast until he knew that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. In his praise here, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that it is God's dominion, not his own, which is everlasting, and that it is God's kingdom, not his own, which endures from generation to generation. These words of praise on the lips of Nebuchadnezzar are in parallel of the praise of God's people throughout Scripture. Perhaps you can think of different times where this language happens. For example, Psalm 145, 13 states, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Nebuchadnezzar's praise would sit well in the book of Psalms. And perhaps Daniel, his advisor, had taught him some of these psalms, and this reflects that. Moreover, verse 35 goes on to state, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Here, Nebuchadnezzar confessed that all the inhabitants of the earth, including himself, in comparison, are accounted as nothing to the Lord. Again, this thought seems parallel to Isaiah 40, verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Words of comfort which Isaiah gave to the Judean captives of Babylon are now being echoed in the very praise of the king of Babylon responsible for that. It's an amazing turn of events. Not only are the inhabitants of the earth counted as nothing, but the Lord also does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, to Nebuchadnezzar, that would be angels or other god-like figures. He does his will in heaven and also with all the inhabitants of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar has just had an object lesson firsthand that this is the case. He, the most powerful man on the earth, 
was just made like a beast by the strength of the Lord's hands. This sounds again like Psalm 115, 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Do you remember earlier in chapter 3 with the fiery furnace scene? And he's, the king challenged Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says, and what God can deliver you from my hand? Well, he saw that their God was able to deliver from his hand. But notice now in chapter 4, he confesses that none can stay the hand of the Lord. None can question his doings. It's a great turnaround that we're seeing. After praising the Lord, Nebuchadnezzar appraises his own subsequent condition, saying in verse 36, At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Nebuchadnezzar has already described his mental and perhaps spiritual restoration. Now he mentions his material restoration in accordance with these other aspects. He says, for the glory of his kingdom, majesty and splendor return to him. With the return of his wisdom, his reason, his counselors and great men seek him out. As a consequence, we read that he's, his kingdom was again established for him, and still more greatness was added to it. Some people take this summary as evidence that Nebuchadnezzar is still in his pride, that he's still focusing on his glory. But I think this is unfair conjecture. After all, in the vision that God gave him, the bronze and iron band represented that there was hope for restoration from this situation, that the Lord was preserving the kingdom for him until the time that he recognized that the Most High rules. I think we're seeing the fulfillment of that and that the Lord preserved it until the time that Nebuchadnezzar repented. Further, the language of still more greatness was added to me. It reminds me of another story in the Bible. It reminds me of the story of Job who suffered so much, but which ends with the Lord blessing the latter days of Job more than the beginning. It's kind of a similar situation here. In support of this, Nebuchadnezzar does not dwell on his own glory or majesty, but he gives an instruction when he says that, now I, in verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Recall that Prior to this, Nebuchadnezzar has shown progress in his faith. He had commanded all peoples of his kingdom to bow down to a golden idol. Then, after the experience with that, he forbid anyone from speaking against the Most High God. But now, he actively promotes and proclaims the glory of the Most High God. With this, he finally recognizes his subordination to God, praising, extolling, and honoring whom he describes as the King of heaven, recognizing the rightness and the justice of his works, even the work of humbling him and bowing him down, 
Even that, he recognizes as righteous and just. And he acknowledges that God is able to humble those who, like himself, walked in pride. With the end of this chapter, we come to the end of the Nebuchadnezzar cycle. It began with the Lord using Nebuchadnezzar as an instrument in his hands to conquer his own people. And it ends with his people as instruments in his hand being used to conquer the heart of this king. This pagan king. The narrative given here of Nebuchadnezzar's reign and life, it demonstrates to us, yes, the sovereignty of God, but also his patience, his compassion, and long-suffering, steadfast love. It also shows us the inscrutability of his will. He brings Nebuchadnezzar through trials and tribulations in order to humble him and cause him to acknowledge his name and reign. To humble Nebuchadnezzar, he was made literally like a beast until he acknowledged the Lord's kingship and reign. But what does this cycle of Nebuchadnezzar teach us about ourselves? While we have not been made into actual beasts, in our sin we often act beastly toward the Lord. The psalmist says in Psalm 73, 21, verse 22, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. All of us have our beastly moments. All of us can act brutish and ignorant before the Lord and to question him. The psalmist, for his part, was looking at the prosperity of the wicked. And he thought, why are things going so bad for me? Have I washed my hands in innocence in vain? And you know how he came out of that state, that beastly state? How he came from that ignorant and brutish condition? He came into the house of the Lord, and then he understood their end. That's why we come to church, to shake off our beastly behavior, our brutish thoughts, and to be reminded that the Most High, the King of Heaven, reigns, and that we must humble ourselves and worship Him. When we question the Lord's wisdom, when we do not acknowledge His sovereignty, we act brutishly and we behave as beasts towards Him. Nebuchadnezzar helps us to see the brutishness of our knowledge and the beastliness of our desires and attitude and directs us to confess our pride in ourselves, in our possessions, in our achievements, whatever it be, and to confess that all of these things are from, through, and to God. And it's to Him that belongs the glory forever and ever. Through the Lord's sovereign will, he established the lowly man, Nebuchadnezzar, as the king of most of the known world in his day. The Most High God used him as an instrument in his hands to correct and judge his people, even. He used him in this way, but he also humiliated him to bring about his own restoration, his own repentance. This was forcefully done to Nebuchadnezzar to bring him into this state. But in accordance with the triune council, God sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, who willingly entered into a lowly state of humiliation, not because of any sin or pride on his part, which he did not have, but in order to save us 
and restore us from our own sin and pride. Because of his obedience and humiliation, being born in a low condition and under the law, living a life we could not live and dying a death we could not endure, enduring the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, because of all this, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Because of his person and his work, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Jesus Christ has been established as the King of heaven, the King of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ has established and inherited the kingdom of his Father. This kingdom is an everlasting and unchangeable. And in his mercy and his grace, he has gone before us to prepare a place for us in the house of his Father. If you are humbled in your heart, if you were repentant of your sin, if you were looking to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, be assured that his humiliation led to his exaltation. And that as you humble yourself by faith in Christ, you will receive the restoration which his humiliation brought. And at the proper time, God promises that he himself will exalt us. Let us all then turn from our pride, follow the example of Nebuchadnezzar, but even more, follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself that he might be exalted, who humbled himself that we might be restored. Let us look to him in faith, hope, and love. Amen. Amen. Let's pray to the Lord. High King of heaven, we come to you in praise. Lord Jesus, we see your power to save. We see your strength and your might, even in humbling Nebuchadnezzar and bringing this praise from his lips. Lord, but we see it in ourselves that at one time we were like this. We were in ignorance. We were hating one another and hated by one another without hope, without God in the world. But you bring us under your word and you take away our brutish thoughts and our beastly behavior and you give us a heart of flesh that we might serve you. Lord, we pray that you would use this text today by your spirit to break down the pride of our heart and that we would instead give all honor, glory, and majesty to you and to you in your name. We pray that you would use this to remind us of who we are and who you are and that we would devote all of our bodies, minds, all of our possessions, everything we are to you, to whom it belongs. For it's to you that belongs all glory forever and ever. Amen. As Nebuchadnezzar was walking upon the roof of the palace, he was glorying in all that he had made, all that he had conquered, all that he had accomplished. And he was rejoicing in his own glory and his own majesty. The monument which Jesus Christ gives us to remember him by is this meal, which represents the depth of his humiliation for us and for our salvation. And this is what gives him the glory. For when he humbled himself and took that death on the cross, 
when He made Himself poor that we might be rich, the Heavenly Father resurrected Him and exalted Him and made Him King of kings and Lord of lords, putting all the kings of this earth under His feet. That's what this meal represents. Both His humiliation, but it reminds us that He is risen, and that He is the King, and that He is extending His table to us even now. This is a meal which should break down the pride of our heart as we recall and remember what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. But it's also a meal which should rejoice our heart as we're being nourished and fed from the King's finest table. That being said, this meal is for those who have humbled themselves and who worship and acknowledge the Lord God as the High King of Heaven. This is a meal for those who have been baptized who have had a credible profession of faith, who are members in a Bible-believing church, who are actively repenting of their sins, humbling themselves, and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness. If that describes you, please partake of this meal and be nourished and strengthened. If it does not describe you, I would ask that you let the elements pass. We do not want that which is a blessing to become a curse for you. But at the same time, Don't let the opportunity to lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ pass. In viewing this meal, you can see his humiliation. So you can humble yourself and look to him who brings restoration, even to people like Nebuchadnezzar, even to people like me and you. For those of us who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and are looking to him in faith, let us now go to him in prayer and pray that he would bless this meal for our nourishment and our good. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your humiliation and that in your state of exaltation, you still care for us and that you lead us like a shepherd, that you feed us. Lord, we pray that you would bless these common elements of bread and wine, that you would use them for our spiritual nourishment, that by your Holy Spirit, whom you have poured forth on your church, that you would make us to ascend to heaven now and commune with you. We pray, Lord, that this meal would humble us and that we would look to you as the one who does your will in the heavens and on earth. And none can stay your hand or question, why have you done thus? We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would nourish us and strengthen us through this meal. It's in your name we pray. Amen.